Lord, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to spend this time tonight in your word. Here we are on a night where we have opportunity to really love on you and to draw from this text the clarity you desire to show us who you are and what your heart is and who your heart is toward and how in this text. So Lord, I just pray tonight for every person here, myself included, pour forth your Holy Spirit upon us. Immerse us in your Holy Spirit that we would disappear and that you would be the one thing we and others see. And then, Lord, come upon us in such a way that you would birth spiritual gift after spiritual gift and manifest, Lord, in ways tonight that would teach us more about you and draw us to a deeper and more intimate and fruitful relationship with you. So may your word burst open and come alive for each of us. And may we tonight be drawn and captivated and just really enjoy ourselves in your word and see how we fit into this text. So it isn't just about skimming knowledge off the top that would puff us up, but rather, Lord, to receive the edification you intend this text so that we could be built up and be more equipped and useful for the things you've ordained. So, Lord... Now, use this text to draw us into an intimate and more intimate relationship with you. And then, Lord, use this text as well by the power of your Holy Spirit to further prepare us and ready us for the ministries you've ordained and bespoke now in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say tonight is that would any please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures, let the Bible have the final say. I have a hard time sitting down. I start getting into a text like this. So hold on here. We are in now uh, a juxtaposition in David's life. A juxtaposition, a change in things because David has uh, moved from sort of the kid following the sheep to the, to the guy that uh, was ordained to be king but ran for his life for 15 years, more than likely roughly 15 years. Uh, and then... From all of that, then in a place where he's now received the kingdom, he received, again, the first, just the southern tribes, if you will, of Judah and Benjamin for the first seven and a half years of a 40-year reign, and then now has received all of it. Now, having received all of it, David starts to get to work. Now, I'd like you to see the fact that David takes situations of God's blessing, and he uses them, in essence, as springboards for action. And it's, it's so opposite of human nature. Uh, human nature would say, and did I already say, please don't just believe me, but just take the, you know, search the scriptures. Well, let me, let me say it just to make sure, you know, please don't just believe me. Search the scriptures. Make sure that you're testing everything, including what I'm saying. Back in where, where I was. Now, having said that, David had, takes these opportunities that God blesses him and makes clear these things. And then these, these moments of great peace or blessing and man's natural tendency is to sort of seek comfort in those things and just sort of build a camp there and then that's just it. You know, God did some great thing back in, you know, in year 2010 and that's good enough for me. That was the miracle I needed back then and that's all the miracles I'll ever need, right? And God just needed to be something way cool and big and awesome back then and now, you know, God could just kind of be something consequential at best. But David doesn't do that. 
David doesn't just sort of take a great moment and just learn how to just make it a monument. What David does is he becomes king, and then when he decides what he really wants to do, then is he wants to get the ark and he centralizes the government, and then he wants to take the ark and bring it right where he is. He doesn't want a king to rule without God's presence there, and I love that about David. And then once David wants to start to do that, things don't work out very well because he doesn't necessarily do it the way that God called him to uh, in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. And therefore, really bad things happen as a result. But then David ultimately will get that he will ultimately, once realizing that he's wrong, once he realizes that he's not done it right, he changes his behavior to actually do it right. And, and understand, every one of us somewhere in our walks are going, to, are going to approach these moments in our life where something could really, we, we, hit, we hit this crossroads. We, we, it could really be very different from the way we think. And we're like, wow, you know, God's really, he's bigger, he's different than I've made him. I've made him more like me and God's really very different from that. And, and at those moments, you have these choices to make of either you need to change your mind or you need to change the scripture. And there, unfortunately, are going to be those who approach something and they just don't like it. And because they don't like it, they just assume it must not be true. And so they don't like it. So what they do is they just say, well, maybe they won't literally change the text in front of you. But what they'll do is they'll try to find a way to argue away what the Bible clearly says. And you know, when that happens, it just... The simple, beautiful, fruitful walk with God becomes so complicated. And, you know, anything complicated becomes laborious and unfun and becomes something you do out of duty instead of out of joy. Isn't that true? So what you get is this, you know, remember when it's just Jesus and it's just about Jesus and his word was simple. And if it said, don't do it, we just kind of went, don't do it. I think that's pretty simple. And then someone's like, well, it looks like it says, God says, don't do it. But, but we have these experts now that don't really doesn't mean don't. Don't kind of means when you don't want to do it, don't do it. You know, and it's like, and then you're like, well, gosh, well, then how many times in scripture do I have to change my mind on the, you know, and you get these weird moments or you could just say, this is what scripture says. I don't like it, but that doesn't mean it's not true. And I need to change my mind. What you find is. At those moments, you will either flourish in God's simplicity or you will, in essence, dry up in the complication that that man has hung on this thing. But David, he sees that he should have been carrying the ark on the shoulders of priests, but instead he had done it the way that he saw the world bring it back when it had been taken uh, captive, and that is that it was in a cart. So David tried it on a cart. That didn't work. So then he changes his behavior and does it the right way. And that's a great example for each of us. Then from that, David takes the next step. David now has brought the ark is to become central uh, into, you know, into the area where the king is ruling. But then he takes a look and he goes, you know, I really don't get it, though. I mean, God's camping in my front yard. I have this nice house. That's just not cool. So as a result of that, David says, I want to build God a house. And when he wants to build God a house, that's his mission. Ultimately, God tells him, that's not my mission. God speaking He's like, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And again, David is in another crossroad. And the crossroad David is at now is a crossroad where it's all about him trying to do it for God. And he realizes instead he has to let God do it for him. And David recognizes at a moment like that, that either it's going to be about his surrender to God's will, or it's going to be about David trying to force his own, oddly enough, trying to force his own to do something for God. And that doesn't bless God at all. 
In both cases, David recognizes that what David really wanted is going to have to be done a different way. And as it's, as it's going to have to be done a different way, David does the right, the right thing and he changes his mind. But in both cases, God brings him to this place of great blessing, makes him king over everyone, and then promises instead to build him a house that is enduring, and, and God building himself a house, but then building David an enduring throne as king. And in both cases, David again could relax on those promises, but instead, David gets to work. In the first case, David centralizes so that he could be king of all of the people. And then as he centralizes, going as far north as he can for his own tribal allotment. But then, of course, he brings the ark in. Now David starts going. He said, well, if this is going to be God's kingdom, let's expand it as far as we can get. So what we got in the last chapter is David now has brought the territory from 6,000 square miles to roughly 60,000 square miles. And David now, I remind you, had been brought rest on all of our sides, and David has done something that we really haven't seen much in Scripture since the book of Joshua, which is Israel going on the offensive again. And it is amazing what happens when God's people go on the offensive. Not only be offensive, like we're just nasty and rude, like giant jerks for Jesus, but instead, being in that place where we recognize the offensive weapon is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not actually doing nice things, but actually preaching the gospel and backing it up with our actions. And when the church goes on the offensive, well, hell certainly takes notice of it. But yet in all of this, what we get by the end of the chapter is David now has in essence driven back the Philistines, the Moabites, the king of Zobah and his, his constituents, Syria through to Damascus, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, the Edomites. And at this point then, what we realize is we get these verses in the last chapter, verses 6 and 14, where it says that the Lord preserved David wherever he went. David, somewhere in recognizing God's promise for him, recognizes that he, because he has God's promise of sustenance and protection, David knows he can go out and do it. And so he does. David was somebody that all he needed was permission and he was gone. David had a risk it, a go for it in his spirit. And because he had a go for it, all he was looking for was an open gate and he was going to run. Oh, that God would make us those kind of people. That we would be like, God, all you have to say is go when I'm gone. Or better yet, I will go unless you say no. And in all of that, we recognize as God preserves David everywhere he goes. And the word preserved, Yeshua, like Yeshua, Yesha, the idea of being saved or preserved or delivered. David then sets up shop. In the last verses of the chapter, last chapter, we have that David then, now that he has, in essence, enlarged the kingdom and he's driven it back so that this is a very, it's, it's basically David claiming the promises God gave Abraham back in Genesis 15. And he's taken that land, in essence. Then he sets up shop and he has his army general, his recorder, his priests, his scribe, and his commando general. And you would think at this point, everything was in order for David. Think about it. His house, in essence, appears to be in order for the moment. He's got God that's promised to build him an enduring house on that. There's a promise that God will build God's house. That's, that's really cool. There is no enemy anywhere nearby, it appears to be, that is anywhere in sight. So David, in essence, is in a position now where he's, in, he's not threatened by anyone nearby. He's, then he's on, he's taken up a city, set up business, if you will, set up shop. He's got all of the people properly in order. And at this point, the machine is built for the, the government to kind of work. You know, think the government's in a safe place. And you'd think in a moment like this, David could kick back and relax because you would think at this moment, everything is in order. What do you do when everything is in order? What David does is he goes, is there anything else that's missing? 
Now, ultimately, what we'll find is the moment David starts to kick back, puts his hands, folds his hands and puts them behind his head and kicks up his feet, David immediately finds himself in trouble. We won't get there this week. Praise God for that. But the moment David goes on the offensive, I mean, David will always be be much more safe on the battlefield with the Lord than he ever will be in the palace by himself. So, David still has one lingering thing. Because over a decade ago, David made a promise to Saul's son. David, at that time, his best friend. And that promise goes all the way back to 1 Samuel 18. David had already been promised to become king. And in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, David made a covenant. That covenant was with Saul's son, Jonathan, who became David's best friend. And Jonathan gives David his robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. All of the things that a king would rightly have. And you get the idea that Jonathan knows, and God had already told Saul this, by the way, that Jonathan knows he'll never be king. So he gives the things that are rightful for the king, if you will, the the prince regent, the king to be. He gives him all of those proper tools that were, in essence, given to Jonathan because Saul was fighting God and wanting to make his son king, but his son will die in battle. And then in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, David meets him again. And Jonathan says this in verse 14. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require this at the hand of David's enemies. And they caused themselves to vow. In chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, Jonathan says, Let's just go beyond being besties, if you will. He says, Could you make a covenant with me? And I remind you, a covenant's bigger than a promise. A promise requires service. A covenant requires relationship. And in that he says, Can you give me your word, a covenant that... This isn't just about us being friends, but that you will make sure, because I know you're going to be king, that when you are king, the natural thing for a new king that isn't of the same family is that he normally completely annihilates the family of the previous king because otherwise somebody always wants to rise up and take and sort of challenge the throne because his dad or uncle or whatever had already been there. So there's a easy, it's, it's a lot easier to gain loyalty to people. Unless, you know, your dad was hated. And and all of that to say, traditionally, when a new king takes over, he kind of wipes out the other previous family. And so Jonathan says, look, I know you're going to be king. And and David's never singing that song, you know, just can't wait to be king. David's never singing that. And Jonathan's kind of looking, he's going, I know you're going to be king. And when you do, would you please not kill my family? But notice the term he uses. Listen to this in 1 Samuel chapter 20, when he says, you shall not only show me the kindness of, of the Lord is the term he uses. It wasn't just that, you know, can you just... And he goes, in, in Jonathan's mind, the idea of the kindness of the Lord is, could you just not kill us? You know, after me, I mean, you know, we're going to be besties, you know, BFF. But even in all of that, could you not kill my kids when I'm off the scene? Because I have a feeling I'm going to pass off before you do. In First Samuel 23, he says to him, Don't fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. This is Jonathan speaking to David. 
You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. And the two of them make another covenant. Now what Jonathan and David don't know is that Jonathan won't make it. Because his dad has no interest in stepping off the throne, Jonathan will die with his dad in battle in Gilboa at the end of 1 Samuel. And it's the only way that David will become king. At least David will become proper ruler over the people. He had already been king in God's eyes. So, so the reason I say that is this. 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 20, 1 Samuel 23. David and Jonathan had this relationship and, and, and well over a decade ago. And in that, David promised that he would make sure that he would show the kindness of the Lord. He covenanted that he would show the kindness of the Lord to Jonathan's children, to Saul's family, ultimately. And somewhere in that, that hasn't happened. So though David has conquered every enemy on every side, though he has the promise now of God building him an enduring throne, though in all of this ultimately has the promise that the Messiah would come from him, though he has peace and he's set up shop in regards to all of the proper guys and all of their proper positions, kind of like you perhaps you're familiar with the fact when a new um, president takes over in America, he has to assign his cabinet. Those are in essence advisors in all of these different areas to make sure nothing gets neglected. That's at least the theory behind it. And of course, that's what's been a lot in the news lately of the sort of president to come, is that, he, of course, the people he's picking, no matter who you pick, someone's not going to like it. Anyways, with all of that said, so the reason I say that is David has become king, and now he's set up his cabinet. He's set up the guys that are necessary. So though all of that is in order, nagging him in the back past a, a decade ago was this promise that he had with Jonathan, and he hasn't done anything about it yet. And that's our chapter. It's not very long, by the way. But I'd like to see where you think you fit into this. First, I'm sorry, Second Samuel chapter 9 says this. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan, Jonathan's sake? Notice the term there again. Kindness. Kindness for the word chesed. Chesed means the word we use for kindness or loving kindness or mercy. Mercy because... The proper protocol would be, of course, to kill the entire family. David's like, I'd really like to show Saul's family mercy. Now, there was a servant of, of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. Ziba, by the way, means statue. Not a good name for a servant in my opinion, but what do I know? So when he would call them to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said to him, At your service. And the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul to whom I may show, notice the term in verse 3, the kindness of God. Remember, that's the covenant David made. But what's interesting is the man that's after God's own heart, David himself, what David's view of the kindness of God is more than just not killing Saul's lineage. That was Jonathan's view, if you will. That would have been more than enough mercy to just not completely send them to annihilation. But it was so much more. And David really seems to have there the, the heart of God. It's like, you know, when God says, this is a man after my own heart, I kind of get the idea at moments like this, David has actually gotten it. He's, he's captured God's heart in it. So with that said, And Ziba said to the king, Well, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. 
So the king said to him, well, where is he? And notice he's God's constantly reminding us that this person who's speaking, David, is the king. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Now, try these for a moment, just for fun, because that kind of keeps you kind of in it as well. Try the word Machir. And what you're trying to say is not Machir or Machir. You're kind of pronouncing the C and the H. Machir. Machir is the house that he's in. Do you see that? Machir happens to be the son of a guy named Amiel. Try Amiel. And he happens to be in a town called Lodabar. Load the bar like, well, how do we move that thing? You've got to load the bar. Well, I, I want you to recognize God didn't have to tell us any of this. He could have just said he's over there, or he could have picked any one of those three things. It could have been the house of Amiel, or the house of Machir, who's his son, or for that matter, he's in Load the bar. But God told us all three. Why do you think that is? Now, when I get to a text like this, my natural inclination is, well, then let's start digging into the language a little bit and see if it unpacks a little there. And it does. The term mahir, by the way, means sold off. Now, who names their kid sold off? You know, hey, this is my kid. We already sold him. I mean, there's kind of the idea here. You know, we, we could say sold out, but for us, as a Christian, to say sold out, that's usually a compliment. What that means is you're full on. But in any other area, it's, it's, it's an insult, isn't it? To say, well, that guy was a musician, but he sold out. And what that means is, is that he really had a great conviction to be an artist, and now he's just sort of a puppet of someone else. Isn't that kind of what a sold out person is, other than being a Christian? And really, to be honest, we're the same way. We're just happy to be puppets of Christ, because after all, he's our master. And the reason I say that is that when we look at a term like this, get the idea that this could have been someone with great conviction that doesn't have conviction like that anymore. And he's the son of Amiel, and Amiel, by the way, means people of God. But what I find interesting is the town they're in. The town is called Lodabar. Lo, maybe you're familiar with, means no. To this day, if we're walking down the street and some guy is kind of trying to give Deborah the eye, or kind of, you know, kind of getting near Noreen, all she has to do is look at him and go, Lo. And that means no, and no, and to just say it this way, low means low. Now, having said that, what does the word debar mean? Because that's really the issue. Debar means pasture. Now, in a gregarian culture, in other words, in a culture where things are grown, agrarian, I'm sorry, culture, where things are grown, pasture is everything. Because a pasture is where you grow the things you eat, or you grow the things that eat the things that you eat, if that makes sense. You know, so, uh, that will eat it so you can eat them. The whole point of it is, is that without a pasture, there's no future. To say someone is pastureless is to say someone has no future, because what that means is nothing's really growing in their life. So the reason I say that is, this is where this lame guy is. Mr. Lamey is, and forgive me, I'm not trying to get, you know, insensitive about this. We're going to see the situation here in a moment, which, by the way, I totally sympathize with in my own life, is that this is a guy who lives in the house of, of a guy named Sold Out or Sold Over that was the son of the people of God. That was in a place that means no future. So there he is, living in no future, in a house of, that's sold over. That sounds pretty depressing, doesn't it? And it tells us here then, then the king went and brought him. Now, we're going to learn that his name here. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then King David sent and brought him to the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, 
from Lodabar. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of, the son of Saul, came to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And then he said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Hear your servant. Now, I'd like you to recognize here the stuff that we know. We're going to see here in a moment how this all happened. What we do know, by the way, about Mephibosheth, and that's his name as we see it here, is that Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, that when Jonathan died in battle with his dad, which would then be this boy Mephibosheth's dad and grandpa both died in the same battle, that the nursemaid picked him up and started to run. She ran to flee because if Saul and Jonathan both were dead, well, then they knew that the enemy would come to try to take over the area. So she fled with this kid for her own life and for the life of the only living prince at that point. Well, it appeared to be. So what happened is as she was fleeing with him, she dropped him. And as she dropped him, there's no modern medicine. He broke both of his legs. They never had a way to set or to heal. So as a result of that, he was never able to walk again. That's what we know about this guy, Mephibosheth. So let's kind of put this together about this character, Mephibosheth, for a second, before we dig into the rest of the text about what David does. I remind you to show the kindness of the Lord. What we know about Mephibosheth, first of all, is that his name means to put away or to dispel the shame. Interesting, because you're probably aware of the fact that Saul also had another son, which would have been his uncle, whose name meant, in essence, man of shame, Ishbosheth. But here now, Jonathan's son is to put away the shame or to wipe away the shame or to dispel it, like evaporate the shame is the idea. He's the son of David's best friend, but he has been broken, notice, from the fall. And because he was broken from the fall, he has no walk. And because of his family, he was born an enemy of David. He was born an enemy of the king who was broken and crippled from the fall. And as he was broken and crippled from the fall with no walk, he was now left in a house that was sold over, that even though it belonged to the people of God, it was a place with no future. That's what we know about Mephibosheth. In verse 5, we read this. Verse 5 says, Then King David again sent and brought him out of the house of Mechir, the son of Amiel, of, from Lodabar. Notice God gives us all of those same uh, specific things again. But I love the fact that because Mephibosheth couldn't come, because he hadn't to walk, because he wasn't able to walk, David had to go get him. Did you notice that? Imagine if David would say, Well, if he could make his way here, well, we'll talk. If he could earn his way here, maybe at that point he could grant audience with me. But that's not the case at all. And David, so representing Jesus here in so many ways, recognizes we can't come to him. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are of the house of God's enemy. And because of that broken at the fall, we are in a place where we couldn't come to God. And all religion outside of Jesus is about trying to make your way to crawl with our crippled legs over to God to somehow grant audience with Him. Versus David, like Jesus, who knows that we can't come to Him, so He's got to come get us. And this is the whole story of Jesus. Coming to earth because we couldn't crawl up to heaven to get audience with Him. Because we couldn't make it there on our own. 
And then when Mephibosheth then is a result of that, and I remind you, God tells us he came from the house that was sold over from a place that was of no future, just like me. You can, you can be honest enough with yourself or not. Clearly, that's where I was. And well, if we're all honest, it's where we all were. A place where we had no real future. And a place where we were sold over to our sin. Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to it. We were sold over. We were puppets. We may have had conviction at one moment or another, but we were puppets to sin. And we were not only used to kill ourselves, but we were used to hurt lots of other people too. And every talent and every blessing God gave us, the very same thing. And you watch this with boys, right? You give a boy anything. It's amazing how quickly it turns into a weapon. Have you noticed that? It doesn't matter what you give him. Pillow fights were invented by boys. I'm convinced of that. They're like, someone said, ha, 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 he'll never make a weapon out of this. Here, take this pill. And he went, ah, boom! Ha, ha, ha! And that's what you get with boys. It's like, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's pointy, it becomes a sword. If it's something that's kind of at a 90 degree angle, it becomes a gun. And that doesn't, you know, you don't grow out of that. Daniel still does that today. I watch him every once in a while. He's like, ha, 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 whoa. I'm like, Daniel, put that thing away. That's a spork, you know? And it's, it, the only reason I say that is somewhere built into the heart of guys, that's kind of the way it is. We were not only people who were hurting ourselves, we were really gifted at hurting everyone else. Mephibosheth, though, what we find is when he finds himself at the presence of the king, brought to the presence of the king, he does the rightful thing. Verse 6 says, And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Falling on his face and prostrating himself. Of course, I know what you're probably thinking, and that's kind of the elephant in the room at the moment. The guy really couldn't stand. Falling on his face seemed to be fairly natural. But understand, this was actually an active action. And what I mean by that is he made a conscious choice to show his submission to David. This wasn't just he was incapable of standing and therefore fell on his face because Ziba's guys just kind of dropped him off. He prostrated himself. And at which point now... David's response tells us an awful lot. I remind you, David had him brought here. And as David had him brought, David's first word is his name. Did you notice that? Mephibosheth? And he answered, here's your servant. And I wonder if when David looked and saw this man's face for the first time, as I do the math, I wonder if what David saw in Mephibosheth was the face of his old best friend. Mephibosheth likely would be about as old as David may have been when he really first met Jonathan. Hey, I... I um. You may not know this, but when I was a teenager, there was a time where I ran my own dojo with a friend of mine. We were both uh, trained in several uh, different martial art uh, disciplines, and his name is Randy. And Randy was really, really quiet. He was rather slight as an individual. He was kind of thin and smaller. And uh, he certainly didn't have, and because of his mildness, his meekness, uh, and his particular posture, he was much more easily sought out for someone to try to pick on him than, than me. I, was, I had kind of grown kind of big by this point. Uh, to be honest, bigger than I am now. Well, probably the same size, except now gravity has pulled things in much less flat, flattering places. And 
Uh, and Randy was just one of those guys that he was just real mild, but boy, you, you just you didn't want to rattle the guy, that's for sure. And I just remembered him just being this this guy who uh, he was just he was just mellow, and you know those kind of guys you never feel like you have to entertain. You know, some people you always feel like you kind of have to just keep them entertained, and, and, and Randy was never one of those guys. And uh, Randy had chased after the same girl for about three years. She's a Filipino girl. And uh, named Doris, and he, man, he just loved her. And but she had several big brothers, and they are, were not interested in her going out with somebody that wasn't Filipino. And I, I think Randy, I remember him talking to me about the rough position he was in because he knew that he could rip the heads off of every one of her brothers, even though they were roughly they were big guys. But then, how was that going to gain him favor with his future mother and father-in-law? Uh, if he killed all of her brothers just to get the girl. So he was like, okay, so how do I like beat them but not really beat them, you know? That was kind of a weird place to be. But ultimately, after three plus years, he actually not only won the favor of Doris, but he also won the favor of her family, and they were very much behind him, which was really sweet. And uh, they got to the point where he proposed, he got, you know, the blessing. And I understand we weren't Christians, but he was still a, he was still a decent guy. Uh, and... As much as I knew that he wasn't a Christian, I, I certainly wasn't one, so I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to tell you. But I remembered he proposed to, to Doris, and she was just over the moon. She was as happy as anyone could be, and uh, she was just and she was a very seriously. Um, I, I would say now she was a Christian girl. I would have said back then she was a bit religious. So I don't know where Randy uh, went with all of that, but I do know that. You know, they, they made preparations. They, you know, it was a really big deal. And I had, by this point, gone to university. So I was gone from it all. And, uh, but I was still going to be the best man. And so he's like, well, you know, come the day of the wedding. We're going to kind of have a few of the guys. We're going to take them out the night before. And I just remember thinking, you know, man, those are the, those are not the guys you really want to go out the night before your wedding. And, uh, they were guys that we had kind of trained that kind of turned into mercenaries and they were just they were just all testosterone head kind of guys and and they went out and they had gone drinking and they went on a road called High Road which is a very very windy road with these sheer sheer drops and I think that was the reason people liked to go on it was how tempting it was you know to tempt death on that and uh, they were driving way way too fast and they were way way too intoxicated and the car flew off so hard off the road that it wrapped itself around a tree and didn't even slide down. It was still suspended in the air as it hit. And, and Randy was the only one who wasn't killed instantly of all the people. But Randy had gone through, bashed his face on the tree. And uh, and I just I just remember visiting him because, I mean, I, I got a call, you know, from his, his sister, Renee, and she was, needless to say, in, in a lot of grief. And... I just remember dropping everything and heading down there to go and see him in the ER, the A&E, and seeing him, and he was unrecognizable. I mean, his face was just, because he had broken every bone in the front of his face, so his whole face was swollen up like a tomato. And he was just in really, really bad shape. And, and that night, his family was in this place where where they decided they were going to pull the plug. And I just remember how profound that moment was where you just kind of, you know, obviously he was in a coma. He was obviously in a great deal of uh, duress physically. And you just grab the guy's hand and you kind of talk to him. And 
And I just remember just saying, man, is this what you really want? And I just remember a tear coming out of the side of his eye and you just kind of look at that and you think, man, are you, are you in there? Are you, are you in there? You know, again, I had no concept of God at this point. And when the machine stopped, of course, it was very shortly thereafter, Randy stopped. But I just remember for the next couple years, even though one of the better friends that I had was Randy's little sister, Renee, I just couldn't see her. I couldn't see her because they looked so much alike that all I could see in Renee was Randy. I mean, the face was so clearly the same in so many ways. I mean, she was clearly much more feminine as he was more masculine, but but I just remember that every time I saw her, all I could see was Randy. And I just wonder, I mean, forgive me for sort of projecting that, but as I look at David, I just wonder as he looks and he sees this this young guy, and it's like, you know, that the last time he saw his best friend, he said, you know, hey, I'm going to be next to you, buddy. And then he gets killed in battle. And, and now he looks and he sees this guy on his face and somewhere in all that, David's got to look in the face of this guy. And I just wonder if he saw Jonathan. You know, in, in all of that. So he calls him by name. The first thing is he calls him by name Mephibosheth, the one who dispels the shame, evaporator, the remover of shame. Is, is that you? And he just calls him by name and he says, I'm your servant. And then verse 7, where this whole thing just gets so beautiful. David's next response is, don't fear. Do you realize how many times in Scripture God says that to someone? How many times somebody is in a place, on a precipice of having to do some kind of change, and you're looking and it's so unknown, and you're freaking out. And God says, first you find often he'll call you by name. And he's like, don't fear. Now, Mephibosheth's fear would be very different, I imagine, than ours until we're called to the face of God at judgment. Because Jonathan, of course, I would imagine just assumes that David's there to kill him, so he wants to bring him in and kill him in front of him just to make sure he's dead so that there's no threat from Saul's house. I would imagine that's where Mephibosheth would go with this. It's just not where David's going with it. David has kindness on his heart and I would imagine on the other side of it, Mephibosheth is probably assuming David has vengeance on his heart. And there are a lot of people, of course, who see that see our God that way. You know that. And David looks and he's just like, don't fear. I just can't help but think of how God said that over and over and over to, to Joshua as he was about to cross the land and take the promised land, the place where God had promised great fruitfulness. You're like, you're going to have to cross the river because I've got great fruitfulness for you. But don't fear. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. And just the same way he talks to Isaiah, or he talks to Daniel, or he talks to John, or to John uh, you know, in the book of Revelation, as John's on Patmos, and John starts to recognize Jesus is in a glorified state, and he starts to flip out, and Jesus goes, John, just don't fear. The same thing that Jesus said to his disciples after he was resurrected, because everyone's mind was oozing out of their heads, and Jesus is like, don't fear, guys, it's me. Is this your God? Is this your King who calls you by name like Jesus told us in John 10? Who then once He calls you by name says, Hey, don't, don't fear. Because I'm going to surely show you
kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I will restore to you and all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Literally, if you will, forever is kind of the idea here. This, according to David, was the kindness of the Lord. In the eyes of the world, the kindness would be just simply, Mephibosheth, I'm not going to kill you. Do me a favor. Don't revolt. Try to raise up a group of people or I'm going to kill you. So here's the deal. I'm going to give you a house. You can stay in your house. I'm going to keep a guard with you. The moment you start acting a little bit wonky, you're a dead man. But I'm going to show you mercy. I'm I'm not going to kill you. That would have been mercy. But David didn't say that what he was going to show was mercy. What David said is he was going to show the kindness of God is what he says. And the kindness of God here seems to be, at least in the eyes of David, and I would have to agree, he actually does it in three steps. First of all, I'd like to show you, if you will, the first thing is compassion. That's the word we see in essence here, this kindness, this mercy. It's like, look, at I would like to show you that I'm not going to go and give you vengeance. And let's face it, that would be enough for every one of us. That would be more than we deserve, any of us. If God's like, look, at I'm not going to send you to hell. That's more than any of us deserve. But he goes beyond that. It goes from compassion to restoration. As he says, I'm going to actually give you everything that your dad had. If your dad owned it, or actually your grandpa, it's like, if your grandpa owned it, I'm going to give it to you. So, though David is king and he has a right to assume all of Saul's land, he looks at Mephibosheth and says, hey, buddy, this is yours. But to me, that's not even the most profound part. Let's be honest. For some of us, the moment we came to Christ, the restoration He did in our lives, not just with people, but in our own minds, is so profound that we should be, I mean, I should be a drooling idiot. Now, if you think I am, that's okay, but I'm much less a drooling idiot than I was before I knew the Lord when I blew my brains out with drugs and with violence. And the fact that He's restored that, in essence, what He's saying is, I'm going to restore to you all that you had before the fall. Because you remember the fall was it took place when Jonathan and Saul died. And I can see the Lord looking at you and me and saying, I want to restore to you all that Adam had before the fall. Well, what did Adam have before the fall? He had intimacy with God. I mean, he and God walked hand in hand, if you will, face to face. This is the relationship that, that Adam had with God. And God's like, look at, I just, first of all, I want to show you compassion. But second, I want to show you, I want to restore you to a place of intimacy with me. But that isn't all of it. And he says, and you shall eat at my table continually. Not only did David show him compassion, and grant him restoration. David just gave him adoption. And we will see that. If you don't believe me, wait until you see four different times in this short chapter of 13 verses, we read that Mephibosheth is eating bread or eating at David's table. But one of them is going to make really clear what that means. Well, for us who aren't as clear on the culture, perhaps. 
So David says, look, don't be afraid. Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. Could you hear the Lord say that to you tonight? Shemar, don't be afraid. Suti, don't be afraid. Marcia, don't be afraid. Ugo, I'm going to restore to you what Adam had before the fall. What your, in essence, earthly father had before he fell. And I'm going to give you adoption. You will be at my table from this point forward. No end. You start now and it never ends. Perhaps you're familiar with Romans 8.15 where it tells us that God has not given us the spirit again of fear. But he tells us what he has given us is the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Reiterated that in Galatians 4 or 5, if you will. Now, Mephibosheth's response, I wonder how shocking that was for David because he says in verse 8, he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Now, I'm sure you might agree but there are several things out there that you can look at and say this is a bit useless. A fur punch bowl, useless. A glass basketball, useless. And, and at least as far as I'm concerned, a voucher for Starbucks. With all due respect to Starbucks, although I would get my wife things because she gets stuff from there, so I'm really thankful for that, but I'm just not a coffee drinker. For me, it's useless is the idea. But of all the things that I might find useless... Dead dogs surpass them all. Hey, look at living dogs. There's some, you know, there are some living dogs out there. I think they have great use. Some of them, their greatest gift is pooping everywhere I want to step. I've found that. But a dead dog really don't necessarily see any decent use for it. The ultimate idea of calling yourself a dead dog is that in, it's valueless especially in a culture where people didn't pet their dogs. They were, in essence, if you'll pardon me for saying, they were vomit vacuums. People would eat too much, they would throw up. And then as they threw up, the dogs would come in and eat it. Forgive me for being graphic, it's the whole point. This is why it says in the book of Proverbs, like a dog returns to his own vomit, he does it with his own as well as yours, so is a fool to his own folly. And it's supposed to go, ew, that's disgusting. And God's like, that's the way you should look at going back to your foolishness, is the idea. You should look and go, that's disgusting. But the thing that I think most profound is, this isn't the first time we've, that David's ears have heard the words dead dog. These are the same words David used when he spoke to, to this guy Mephibosheth's grandpa, Saul. If you remember when Saul ran into a cave that David was hiding in and David cut off a corner of his, of his garment, he said, why are you trying to kill me, Saul? What am I but a dead dog to you? I'm worthless to you. What's the big deal? Loose paraphrase. So I wonder if this is, I wonder if that resonated with David. I wonder again if there's this moment in the past that was profound that is connecting with the moment right now as Mephibosheth calls himself the same thing. Verse 9. The king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat 
But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. There's the second of four times we see that. So says, look at it. Mephibosheth was not only adopted, he was brought to a place of honor. Now, when Saul died and Jonathan died, Mephibosheth was more than an orphan. Mephibosheth was a shamed person from a failed kingdom. Think it. And if you think that through, David restored him the land of his his grandfather Saul, but he also restored him the honor. Interesting for a guy that's name means dispelling the shame. And please hear me in this. My God wants to restore to you honor. Stop treating yourself like an honorless fool if you've been adopted by the king. Recognize the honor he's granted you and start living like it. Live like a person that is noble. Because you are. You happen to be the child of the King of Kings at His choice. I love the fact that it's adoption for a million reasons, having adopted myself. But I, but I love, of all those reasons, one is, let's face it, when a child is born biologically, you don't really have a lot of say in the matter. I mean, the baby comes out and you're like, that's what we got. No, I'm really thankful for the ones we have. But it's, you know, but it isn't like you kind of like you can go, well, put that thing back in until it gets longer legs or longer hair or, you know, you just can't do that. And once the baby's out, it's just, that's your baby. But when it comes to adoption, you can, you know, it's like you kind of look. And, and when, when Ruthie was brought to us, they said, look at, you can pick another. If she doesn't, she doesn't please you, you can send her off and we can get another. So I thought it was such a, you know, I mean, obviously it's kind of a weird place to go. Boy, am I thankful we didn't send her off because, man, I adore those children. And I just, you know, I mean, I can't imagine, to be honest, I can't imagine anyone else in the world parenting that child. So, I mean, for the sake of the world, I'm thankful that we have her. But, but what I do love in all of this is that the idea of adoption here is, listen, you need to recognize it isn't like God looked at you and just went, well, you kind of came out that way. I guess I'm stuck with you. God took a look at you and said, yes, I'll take that one. That's the one. I'll take that one. God never looked at you and went, oh, oops. Well, I guess that's just the way the cards are being played. David, like this, recognizes that he adopts this guy, well aware of the fact that he's lame in his feet, well aware of the fact that he's a grandson of Saul, well aware of the fact that he is, in essence, the part of a shamed kingdom. And should, in essence, would be, would, could propose, could pose a potential threat to David's kingdom if he were to rise up and try to gather old Saulites, if you will, that were actually people that still wanted to have Saul, you know, be the king. And, and the reason I say that is, David takes a risk here, but he looks and he recognizes with all of his warts and faults and all, David still looks and he goes, that one! He's so unintimidated by all of the faults and weaknesses of Mephibosheth, and he wants him anyways. And I just love the fact he looked at you, and it wasn't like anything about you that he went, well, okay, I guess... But David is like, look, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, according to Ephesians 2. We were walking around in the lusts of our flesh. So that means we were, in essence, baby zombies. you know. And that's also in Ephesians chapter 2. And we were following it. Says, and we were, in essence, driven by the prince of the power of the air, the, the, the prince who was at work 
you know, in the sense of disobedience. In other words, we were in essence remote controlled by the enemy of Jesus, dead in our trespasses and sin. Romans makes clear we were sinners and enemies to God. And this is, and God looked and he saw you as his enemy. He saw you as remote controlled by the enemy, if you will. He saw you as dead and corroding. He saw you as weak and powerless and despised and base as, as we read those that God calls in 1 Corinthians 1. And he looked at it and he goes, that one, I'll take that one. I want that one. And there's nothing about Jesus that he saw that, he, that, you, that later on he would go, oh, well, I didn't realize you had that. Well, the deal's off. He knew everything about you when he said that one. There's nothing you can show him that he's going to get, that you're going to surprise him or that he's going to go, oh, well, I'm not really as happy about it now. And I love that David looks here and he says, listen, I'm going to restore to you so much more than just a place of, you know, where you're just, you're no longer going to be an orphan or a beggar. You're going to be at this point, you're going to be, you're going to be part of my household. And not only are you going to be part of my household, I'm going to restore to you honor. You're going to sit next to David's sons. You're going to sit next to my boys, my other boys. And boys, some of them, you could probably teach them a thing or two, you know, about bowing and saying, hey, by the way, you're the boss, Dad. You know, it's like, look at all of these things. Because I remind you, David and Jonathan, it's like, I was best friends with your dad, Mephibosheth. I mean, I can't even think of a short name for it. It's like, Phoebe, what do you call him, right? But anyways, and so it says then, now, by the way, it tells us that, that Ziba, by the way, Ziba was the right guy for that. In the end of verse 10, it says Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. That tells me, by the way, that, you know, that's, that's, that he has a lot of people to, to work in the house and to work the field. And now, here's the strange part. Do you remember where Mephibosheth was living? Do you remember what the place was called, literally? No pasture. Which ultimately, the idea is no future. But because David granted him the land of his grandfather, Saul, he would need servants to work the land. Do you see the difference? He was living in a place with no pasture. And yet he goes, look, I'm going to restore all that back and then I'll give servants with you so you can work the land. Because you lived in a place with no future and I'm going to give you a total future. But look at verse 11. Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, look at this beautiful verse. It says, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Did you get it? He's mine now. This, I remind you, this morning he woke up as an enemy of David. This morning he woke up in a house with no future, in a place called Sold Over, in a place of relative obscurity that no one, David obviously didn't know existed at this point. And then David discovers it, and someone says, Hey, the king is calling for you. And you're thinking, Uh oh, I'm a dead man. Well, it was good while it lasted. You get there, you're on your face, and you're like, just please don't kill me. Please, please don't kill me. And he's like, Daniel, don't be afraid. I really just want to be kind to you. What I really want to be is kind, kind to you. And I want to restore to you what Adam had before he fell. And I'd like to make you my own. I'd like to adopt you. 
going to do that? And then I'm going to restore honor to you. But you're going to sit at my table with my sons. You're going to be one of my sons, boy. Verse 12 says, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micha. Micha, by the way, means like it's the male for who is like God. Literally means, in essence, like God. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem and he ate, here's the fourth of four, continually at the king's table. And he was lame in both his feet. I love the fact that this ends with him answering, with him finishing the promise. David says, you're going to sit at my table forever. You're going to be safe there. You'll never have to worry about it. And guess what? That's exactly what we saw. So here we are now in this place. We end this with somebody who gets to sit at the table of the king for, for the rest of the time that he lives. And he did nothing to deserve it. Because it was not about how Mephibosheth deserved this. It was all about how kind the king was. Did you notice? And in the same way, you'll never earn the love of God, but you don't have to. You already have it. All you need to know is he's kind and he invites you to the table. And because you can't come, He'll carry you there himself if he has to. All he's asking is, will you be willing to let him be king? Because he's rightfully so. And if you're willing to do that, God is willing. And I wonder, and I wonder, I wonder, when God looks in our eyes, if he doesn't see, even for a moment, the littlest hint of Adam when he walked in the garden with him. We kind of looked and it was like, oh, I miss those days. It was just us walking in the garden, laughing and giggling, exploring the wonders of it and enjoying. I want that back. Look, if you've been walking with the Lord for any period of time and somewhere in all of it, you've kind of gotten diverted and distracted from what God really wants. Can I say tonight... Your merciful, kind king wants you back at his table where you belong because the seat is only yours to, t- to fill. And he's called you by name, told you not to be afraid, and he calls you to come. And you're like, I can't come. God's like, I know. Give me permission and I'll take you there myself. But you've got to let him be king. This is not a battle. This is not a battle over who has a right to the throne. It is completely a battle over whether or not you're willing to let him love you. That's really it. So as we go to prayer, that's my prayer for you. And that's my prayer for me tonight. My prayer is tonight that we could thank God, that we could fill, in essence, the broken shoes of Mephibosheth and be taken to the table. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for how, Lord, in all of this, you have shown your great kindness. And how in all of this, what you desire to do is 
is bring us to this place where we could sit and not do, but be with you and enjoy you. And in enjoying you, being breaking bread together, being one together, to see the joy of our King, the pleasure and the blessing of our King, and the love in His eyes for us uniquely as His adopted own, sitting at the table with other sons. And I see how important fellowship is as we sit at the table with other sons so that we can't forget to whom we belong. And I just wonder when things go weird later how uh, anyone might want to try to play that David is in kind card. If Mephibosheth ever spoke up and said, you guys are, you guys are insane. Don't you realize what he's done for me? And I wonder how many times in our own lives people could try to play that card and say that you are unkind, God. And they could try to step into pools that they have no real conscience or clarity in. Keep us from being silent at that moment and be with our mouth and embolden us to be able to speak about the great things you've done, not because we will ever earn it, but because you are kind And your kindness is one that's full of compassion and restoration and adoption. Lord, we recognize broken at the fall, we cannot come, but you will come for us. And we thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, that that Father, you sent Jesus to earth to come and get us. And in coming to get us, he died on the cross to pay for all of our shame so that at His death, all of our guilt was properly paid. And at His resurrection, just like Scripture promised on the third day after being buried, that He shows Himself to be the restorer of our dignity in the new life You grant us, one in adoption. Not below the King's sons, but with the King's sons, as a King's son. And I thank You for that. And though I was an enemy in my heart and mind to you, you have made me now more than a friend. You've made me your your child, your love. And I thank you. So tonight, Lord, I just pray that you would really revolutionize our hearts and make us people who really grasp the beautiful gravity of what you've done and what you continue to do as we continue to eat at your table continually. God, may we see how amazing it is that we ever get to come to the table at all. But the idea that we could be there all the time, feasting with you, supping with you, enjoying you, sitting at your feet, choosing the better service in doing so. So Lord, here we are where you are Continue your restoration on us. Continue your restoration of the things, Lord, that we have rightfully squandered, or wrongfully squandered, but also, Lord, that restoration of dignity that comes because we're your child. And fill us with the gratitude that we should have 
when you took a dead dog like me and made him a living son. In Jesus' name, amen.